Welcome to the One Climbs Podcast, a show about exploring life through the lens of theology, scripture, symbolism, and ideas that uplift the human mind. We're kind of continuing my word of wisdom story here. And as I said in the beginning of the first part of this episode, anything that I have to say here is my own experience, my own perspectives. It's very, very important. And I'll get into this a little bit later that now you understand what I'm trying to do here is, is not tell anyone how to do things or how to interpret the scriptures. I'm just sharing my personal experience. So with that, uh, let's, let's kind of continue on. I had been thinking about these things for years and years as I came across these little things, but about six months of just digging up every source that I could, putting it in my notes, cross-referencing, and, and then looking at what I found and the feeling that I got from what I found. And and this kind of new light that entered my mind of, of this, this kind of understanding that I had that I didn't before made me realize that I was going to need to make some pretty big changes. And they were not changes that I was comfortable with at all. But I was willing to do them because I felt like to me personally that God had showed me a little bit of how he views things. And as I came to view those things the same way, I, I wanted to accept that I didn't want to push against it, even though it wasn't what I was looking for wasn't the answer that I wanted. Um, I, I had this deep desire to make a change and that's, that's taught me so much going through my life as I've looked at other aspects of the gospel you know, there are, there are a lot of things that represent God's will that we may not want at all. We may have a desire and appetite for this or that. And I had a desire to eat meat. Everyone knew my favorite food was sandwiches. That was like this joke, this thing like, Oh yeah, sandwich. I love sandwiches. I mean, that's just my favorite food. If I had a choice to eat absolutely anything in the world, man, a big juicy sandwich with freshly cooked bread, the crust kind of slightly flaky and just all the fixings, everything in there, man, that just makes my mouth water. And it's my favorite thing in the world. I realized, well, this would change the dynamic of what I consider a sandwich to be. So I wasn't entirely comfortable with, with making some of this, these shifts. So let me share a little bit with you kind of what I found that were really influencing to me. So I read and I I saw in the garden of Eden that God made all these plants and he intended for these, this fruit of the ground to be meat for Adam and Eve and and also all of the animals, which I thought was, was kind of interesting. And then, you know, Noah, um, the Lord tells him every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. But then 
we go and look at the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 9-11, it says, and, and surely blood shall not be shed only for meat to save your lives. And the blood of every beast will I require at your hands, only for meat to save your life. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And the law of Moses had all these other um, restrictions saying you can eat these kinds of animals, but not these kinds of animals. So it's like, okay, so it seems like, you know, God intended these things. And then you get down to the word of wisdom, whoever forbids to abstain from meats, that the same should not, or that man should not eat the same is not ordained of God. And, and God has designed these beasts and they're ordained to be used for man, for food, raiment, and that he might have abundance. But then, a few verses later, woe be unto man that sheddeth blood or wasteth flesh and hath no need. Um, then we get some more instructions. The fullness of the earth is yours. This is DNC 59. It was DNC 49, those previous verses. Uh, the fullness of the earth is yours, the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air, all these different things, right? All things which come of the earth in season are made for the benefit and use of man to please the eye, to gladden the heart, food, raiment, taste, smell, strengthen the body, and enliven the soul. And it pleaseth God that he's given all these things unto man for unto this end were they made to be used with judgment, not to excess, neither by extortion. So, you know, you, you get these, these scriptures that are saying, yeah, he's made all of this for you to have an abundance, but then there are these conditions attached to it. And I see this happening over and over and over again. And then DNC 89, which is known as the word of wisdom consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days. I've warned you and I forewarn you by giving to you this word of wisdom by revelation. Now, typically people associate that with things like drugs and drunkenness and, and cigarettes, <laughs> coffee and tea and, and addictive substances and all the conspiring men are trying to addict people and, and all these stimulants. And then that's, typically what you hear a lot of people talking about, but that's not what those scriptures say. They mention, you know, strong drinks and actually say barley, mild barley drinks are fine, which is beer. But, um, I'm, I'm not going to get into all that. There's people have talked about caffeine and all these different things. And, uh, so it, it gets pretty tedious after a while. And then sometimes I think people just throw their hands up in the air and like, okay, I'm not doing the bad stuff. I'm good. I'll just do everything else. And that's, that's typically how I looked at it for a long time. But as I started digging through and, and looking very carefully and, and seeing that the word of wisdom is described as a principle with a promise that's given to us, not by commandment or even constraint, but showing forth the will of God in the last days. And not only that, he, he talks about keeping and doing these sayings will, will offer you great treasures of knowledge, hidden treasures. You'll run and not be weary. You'll walk and not faint. And that the destroying angel will pass you by as the children of Israel and not slay you. And that to me was, was kind of a big deal. You know, what, what's he talking about here? You know, is, is the, are drug dealers and all these things going to bring the destroying angel upon us? But 
But what about these other things? You know, that's where we're kind of missing this point about what a principle is. And here we have a principle with a promise. And so it's not by commandment or constraint. So let's treat it like a principle and see what happens. All these things about, you know, we see tobacco being used or what the proper use of tobacco is, but that it's not for your belly. Strong drinks are also not for your belly, but for washing your bodies. And, and so you have these examples of, of things that have a correct use, but an incorrect use. So it's not to be used for this, but it is useful for this. And we see this, this kind of happening over and over again, the flesh of beasts and fowls of the air. It says, I, the Lord have ordained for the use of man with thanksgiving. Nevertheless, they are to be used sparingly and it is pleasing unto me that they should not be used only in times of winter or of cold or famine. And there's a lot of controversy on the comma in that verse, verse 13. And there's, there's been some research done on this that shows that although this comma was added um, sometime in the early 1900s, it remained there unchanged because of what the meaning of the word only is. And so the comma was added because it actually makes the meaning more clear as to how it was originally understood. So if you remove that comma, it reads, it's pleasing unto me that they should not be used only in times of winter, cold, or famine. So suggesting that I'm pleased when you're eating the flesh of beasts in times other than winter, cold, and famine. When you put the comma in there, it says it's pleasing unto me they should not be used only in times of winter or of cold or famine. So that comma is very important because it it has a very, very different meaning whether it's there or not. But the early members of the church interpreted it with that as if that comma was there. And it's and there's a bunch of other examples from the scriptures. Um, Jane Birch, if you look her up, she has a paper about questioning the comma in DNC 8913, where she goes into the history of it and, and absolutely uh, lays out that the comma is supposed to be there. And the fact that it's been there for, what, a hundred years untouched, nobody's gone in and messed with it because the meaning of it there is is correct. And there's history there to, to point that out. So anyway, that's, a, that's kind of a long aside, but you know, we go through again, the talking about the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air and God, these hath God, God has made for the use of man only in times of famine and excess of hunger. Some people say, well, that's referring to wild game animals and it's not talking about domesticated animals. So you, you have a lot of these, these very specific things that people will, will get into and, and separate and look at. And those are all, I think, valid arguments. We should be able to have a conversation about those things and, and discuss them and, and try to understand, uh, what they mean. Um, but the big thing for me, as I, as I was looking at this, it, it seemed like no matter what argument you could make, if you go through there, there does seem an indication, all these scriptures combined that, that God has allowed us to use animal life, but that he set limitations on it. There are conditions. And one of the big conditions that just kind of boiled down um, to me was the word need. Need seems to be one of the 
I don't know if you could say need is a is a principle, can you? I mean, I guess it could be a principle, but it seems like need is where it pivots. That's where your decision is made is, is this needful or is it not needful? Am I justified in doing this? Am I not justified in doing this? Can I answer a clean conscience before God doing, doing this, taking this life? So that seemed to be where the scriptures were for the, for the most part, just the big wide view. And, and that was the thing that I, I don't know what I was totally comfortable with. Cause I was like, man, can I, uh, <laughs> can I answer that question? Honestly, of every sandwich I eat, every steak I eat, every brisket sandwich I eat, I, I don't know if I can. So I'm going through and looking at the vast majority of these references I have from church leaders talking about these things. we got Joseph Smith talking about these prairie rattlesnakes. Um, the brethren were about to kill them, but he says, leave them alone. Don't hurt them. How will the serpent lose its venom while the servants of God possess the same disposition and continue to make war upon it? And so they take these serpents on sticks and carry them across the creek. And then um, uh, later on, some more rattlesnakes are discovered sleeping under some people and they quietly carry them out of the camp and um, uh, while the brethren were making beds in Brigham Young's tent, one of them discovers uh, they said a very musical rattlesnake which they were about to kill uh, Captain Young told them not to hurt him but carry him out of the tent and this, uh, this is really funny so Brother Carpenter takes him in his hands the rattlesnake, so apparently he picks him up. He's probably holding him by the neck so he doesn't get bitten. He carries him beyond all danger and left him to enjoy his liberty, telling him not to return. So I picture Brother Campbell taking out the snake, putting it on the ground, and he's telling him, hey, enjoy your liberty, sir, and please do not return to this camp. So <laughs> talking to the snake, it, it's, it's kind of funny, but... Also, I think there's something kind of cool about that, right? You know, they're, they're showing respect for these serpents and maybe he's trying to teach them something. I don't know. But, um, but we have those accounts. Um, we also, we also have Hiram Smith, uh, talking about this as well. Hiram Smith is Joseph Smith's brother. And he says here, uh, he's talking about disease, the cause of it. And, um, the spring of health, the balm of Gilead of life, and, and how God knows what course to pursue to restore mankind to their pristine excellency, to remove our, uh, he, he established the word of wisdom or appointed it as one of the engines to bring about this thing, to remove the beastly appetites and the murderous disposition and um, vitiated taste of man to restore his body to health, everything like that. He then begins to kind of quote from, DNC 89 saying all wholesome herbs God has ordained for the constitution, nature and use of man. Those, I think those are, those are kind of key terms. Look up the definition of constitution and nature in the 1828 dictionary, because it says that all wholesome herbs or uh, culinary plants, that's what herbs are, culinary plants that are beneficial to human health. God has ordained for the constitution, nature and use of man. However, he only says that the flesh of beasts is ordained for the use of man. He doesn't say constitution and nature. I thought that was an interesting distinction when you compare those two. But he says every herb in the season thereof, every fruit in the season thereof, all these things 
prudence and thanksgiving should be used and also the flesh of beasts and the fowls of the air. But nevertheless, they are to be used sparingly. And it's pleasing unto me that they should not be used only in times of winter, cold, or famine. So he goes through quoting that again. And he says, let man attend to these instructions. And he explains the perspective of this. Let them use the things ordained of God. Let them be sparing of the life of animals. And then he quotes, it is pleasing, saith the Lord, that flesh should be used only in times of winter or famine. And why to be used in famine? Because all domesticated animals would naturally die and may as well be made use of by man. So the way he kind of interprets that, he says, pleasing saith the Lord that flesh be only used in times of winter or famine. So it's kind of clear that at least Hiram uh, understood the, the meaning in DNC 89 that, that we should only use the flesh of animals in these times. So then Heber C. Kimball, he kind of has some words to say about that. And the kinder we are to our animals, the more peace will increase and the savage nature of brute creation will vanish. Uh, he, he was pretty adamant against eating swine's flesh. And he goes, I know that Moses knew this as well. So he says, mothers, keep the children from eating meat and let them eat vegetables. And he says, take notice, stop your children from eating meat, especially fat meat. Uh, he also said flesh should be used sparingly in famine and in cold. So we can go on and on. Um, we've got Orson Hyde, George Q. Cannon. George Q. Cannon even taught um, that it's a very dreadful sin to, to take life and that the lives of animals should be held far more sacred than they are. He said that young people should be taught to be very merciful to the brute creation and not to take life wantonly. And in part one, I talked about this experience with the lizard. And so this kind of resonated with me. So we shouldn't take life wantonly or for sport. He says the practice of hunting and killing game merely for sport should be frowned upon and not encouraged among us. And he said uh, a little bit later on, uh, it's an exceedingly difficult thing for most people to break off and discontinue cherished and longstanding habits. And, you know, amen to that. It's, it's very hard to do. And here I am experiencing this kind of big paradigm shift, but I'm willing to continue looking. And, and um, some of the other things I discovered, uh, George Q. Cannon says, again, the birds and the animals and the fish, they cannot speak, but they can suffer. And our God who created them knows their sufferings and will hold him who causes them to suffer unnecessarily to answer for it. It is a sin against their creator. And man, holy cow. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty, pretty harsh stuff here. Um, there were other things published, juvenile instructor quotes about the destruction of life, cruelty to animals, mistreatment of them. Um, it's, uh, talks about the love of nature akin to the love of God. The two are inseparable. Man should be kind to the animals which they serve directly and indirectly. I mean, that's, I mean, I think most people, even if you're a rancher, a farmer, most people are kind to animals. They don't want to torture and abuse animals. And they don't see the killing of animals as, as being cruel, but as part of the natural process. It happens in nature. Predators eat prey. But the question here is, is but are, are we held to a different standard? It seems like we are. But what is that? We can keep reading through here. Uh, I'm, I'm going through this article by the way, on my website called Statements on Animal Life from LDS Leaders and Publications. 
This is, you can search that title on oneclimbs.com and you could find all of these quotes. I'm not reading all of them, but I'm, I'm kind of going through some of those that, that were especially eye-opening to me. So Lorenzo Snow, he shared this story and this one, this one kind of struck me pretty hard. He says straight up, killing for sport is wrong. And he says, in Adam on Diamond, while gradually recovering from a fever, uh, he decided that, that he was going to go and, and do some hunting. He grew up hunting and he really enjoyed the pastime. And it said, he says, it never occurred to me that it was wrong. And he said, he didn't consider what was sport to me was death to them. That in shooting turkeys and squirrels, I was taking life that I couldn't give. And he says, therefore, I indulged in the murderous sport without the least compunction of conscience. And he continues by saying, while I was moving slowly forward in pursuit of something to kill, my mind was arrested with the reflection of the nature of my pursuit, that of amusing myself by giving pain and death to harmless innocent creatures and that perhaps had as much right to life and enjoyment as myself. And I realized such indulgence was without any justification and feeling condemned, I laid my gun on my shoulder and returned home. And from that time to this, have felt no inclination for that murderous amusement. And um, he also uh, says here that he introduced the subject of the word of wisdom, I guess in a meeting or a conference, expressing the opinion it, vi it was violated as much or more in the improper use of meat as in other things. And he thought the time was near at hand when Latter-day Saints should be taught to refrain from meat eating and shedding of animal blood. So interesting. He also said, uh, unless famine or extreme cold is upon us, we should refrain from the use of meat. We have no right to slay animals or fowls except from necessity for they have spirits, which may someday rise up and accuse or condemn us, man, that kind of, that hit really hard. That story with my experience with the goat that I talked about in part one. And, um, another quote here from his journal history, it says, president snow was convinced that the killing of animals when unnecessary was wrong and even sinful. And that this was not right, that it was not right to neglect one part of the word of wisdom and be too strenuous in regard to other parts. And yeah, I think we do that, right? We tend to emphasize one part of it a lot and then disregard other sections. We're not looking at it as a whole principle. We're just picking and choosing what we want to live and do. And, and I was kind of done with that. I didn't want to do that. I just kind of wanted to see what the whole thing was and what the message was for me. Because originally my goal was to find out what should people eat. I just wanted to know what, what do I need to consume to stay alive, be alive, be healthy, happy, and strong? And here I am going off on this thing. Well, now hunting's bad. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, this, uh, this is pretty mind-blowing. So then I get to Joseph F. Smith here. He said, I do not believe any man should kill animals or birds unless he needs them for food. And then he should not kill innocent little birds that are not intended for the food of man. I think it's a, I think it's wicked for men to thirst in their souls to kill almost everything which possesses life. It is wrong. And I've been surprised that prominent men whom I have seen, whose very souls seem to be a thirst for the shedding of animal blood. They go off hunting deer, antelope, elk, 
anything they can find. And what for? Not that they're hungry and need the flesh of their prey, but just because they love to shoot and destroy life. And he says, I'm a firm believer with reference to these things in the simple words of one of the poets. And then he quotes it, take not away the life you cannot give for all things have an equal right to live. So he continues saying we're part of life and should study and carefully study carefully our relationship to it. We should be in sympathy with it and not allow our prejudices to create a desire for its destruction. The unnecessary destruction of life begets a spirit of destruction which grows in the soul. It lives by what it feeds upon and robs man of the love that he should have for the works of God. It hardens the heart of man. And men cannot worship the creator and look with careless indifference upon his creation. Hiram Max Smith, uh, he says, to kill when not necessary is a sin akin to murder. This is from a Doctrine and Covenants commentary. George Teasdale says, eating pork is a more serious breach of the word of wisdom than drinking tea or coffee. I don't know that I exactly agree with that or how you can quantify that, but that was his, his opinion, so take it or leave it. I include it in the list because it's, it's a statement. So there's a lot of statements in there. Some you may agree with, some you may disagree with. And I feel the same way. Um, John Henry Smith, animal life is to be properly guarded and not wantonly sacrificed to the appetite of man. His use of it must be limited to times of scarcity, extreme cold when it may be necessary. So this is 1886. So, you know, you, you look at a lot of these we're still in kind of the 1800s. This was this was the way that the word of wisdom was viewed and how animal life was viewed, at least by the leaders of the church. Individual members may have had different opinions, but this was their thinking. Heber J. Grant says that he, he credited his splendid strength for an old man by not having had more than a dozen times ordered any meat of any kind. He says, I've endeavored to live the word of wisdom, and that, in my opinion, is the reason for my good health. And so he didn't, he didn't eat a lot of meat, maybe a dozen times, at least from this particular cafeteria, as he said, but you know, he owed his health to that. That's fair. Uh, there's some other quotes here from, um, elder Joseph F. Merrill and you got John A. Widso. He actually, he actually wrote a book about the word of wisdom that was published in 1950. It's called the word of wisdom, a modern interpretation. And he talks a lot about that. And he says that the, the chief nutritional value of the flesh of beasts is protein as the animals have it prepared for it, prepared it for themselves from the grains and vegetation. He even continues in saying, the prophetic power of Joseph Smith is emphasized in the recent demonstration by modern science of nutrition that meat should indeed form a minor part of the human dietary and that in fact, the plant kingdom contains the necessary food constituents characteristic of meat. He concludes the word of wisdom does not contain a prohibition against meat eating, but urges its spare use. Unfortunately, this advice is not generally observed and man's health suffers in consequence. Many people eat too much meat and he says a few do not eat enough. So that was his opinion. President George Albert Smith, uh, this, this uh, quote here says that his meals are simple and nourishing. In the summer, he eats no meat and even in the winter months, he eats very little so then we get to Joseph Fielding Smith. And this one was a really big kind of kicker for me because he, the way he puts things just really resonated with me. And this is where I think my, my thinking on the matter became kind of 
at least at the time, complete in it put the final puzzle piece into my mind. And this is an answer to gospel questions. And somebody was, was asking about, you know, hunting and uh, eating meat and things, things of that nature. And so he starts answering this question and his opinion is that uh, to take the life of these creatures wantonly is a, a sin before the Lord. He says it's easy to destroy life, but who can restore it when it is taken? So it seems like he was inspired by that poem we read earlier or, or the poet who wrote it and some of those other things. He says, moreover, were not all creatures commanded to be happy in their spheres, at least by implication, if not by word. Man should be more the friend and never an enemy to any living creature. The Lord placed them here. And he quoted the story of Joseph Smith and the, the rattlesnakes on the river that we covered earlier. Uh, he also gave the youth this counsel. He said, it's not only wicked to, to destroy some of these animals, but it's abominable in my opinion. I think this principle should extend not only to bird life, but to the life of all animals. He talked about visiting Yellowstone and saw all of these streams and beautiful lakes and animals just kind of coming up to the people tame with no fear of them and and how amazing this was and he says if these same birds were to visit other regions inhabited by man they would on the count of their tameless tameness doubtless become more easy a prey to the gunner and he says the same of the deer and the antelope he says i i, I can never see why man should be imbued with a bloodthirsty desire to kill and destroy animal life. He goes, I have known men and they still exist among us who enjoy what is to them the sport in quote quotes of hunting birds and slaying them by the hundreds and who will come in after a day's sport boasting they have had the skill to slaughter and day after day during the hunting season when it is lawful for men to hunt and kill the birds having had a season of protection and not apprehending danger go out by scores or hundreds and you may hear their guns early in the morning on the day of the opening as if great armies had met in battle and the terrible work of slaughtering the innocent birds goes on. And he continues, he says, I don't believe any man should kill animals or birds unless he needs them for food. And then he should not kill innocent little birds that are not intended for food. It's, it's wicked for men to thirst in their souls to kill. Um, you know, not to do these things for the fun and for the fun of it and love to shoot and destroy life. And, uh, man, so that part was, was a little difficult because, you know, I have, I have family that hunt. There's, there's kind of a, an annual dove hunt that goes on. And, and as I've, I've gone on these hunts, I'm, I'm kind of the awkward guy who, who doesn't, who doesn't hunt. I, I'll kind of go out there and, and say, all right, well, I'll help find them. You know, I'll help find the birds when they land just to help me to make sure no flesh is wasted. But it's a great bonding experience because I've got, um, in-laws and relatives and, and all these guys that get together and, and there's a lot of com camaraderie there. And to, to miss out on that is, is a, is a difficult thing for me to to wrestle with, uh, because I actually see this play out where early in the morning, all these guns are going off 
and, and, and this slaughter is happening. And I know these words and I read these words and it, it doesn't seem to jive. I, I don't feel like that is the right thing for me to do. So I'm not preachy. I, I don't go and force my will upon other people. I know that everybody has to figure out what they're going to do. And so, you know, I do my own thing. I let them do their thing and, and realize that these principles were not sent out by commandment or compulsion that we're, we're each supposed to follow the path that, that we think we should follow in these regards. And there was a time in my life where I, I had the same opinion. I remember a long time before I even read these words, I went on a duck hunt and I was shooting at ducks. I didn't hit any. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, I'm actually a pretty good shot when it comes to target and skeet shooting, but yeah, I, I didn't hit any ducks. That was my first time bird hunting, but, um, you know, fortunately I didn't hit anything. And right here, these, these were really the words that, that really, really resonated with me. So he was answering the question of whether kids should be eating meat. And this is how Joseph Fielding Smith responded. He goes, he goes, this is my answer in relation to Brigham Young's statement. Uh, yes, small children do not need the flesh of animals. May I add also that adults would be better if they would refrain too much from eating meat. As far as I'm concerned, the eating of meat should be very sparingly. In fact, I will be contented if the millennium was to be ushered in next week. When it is, we will learn that the eating of meat is not good for us. Why do we feel that we do not have a square meal unless it is based largely on meat. Let the dumb animals live. They enjoy life as well as we do. And in the beginning, the Lord granted man the use of the flesh of certain animals. See Genesis 9, 1 through 6. But with so many fruits of the soil from the trees of the earth, why cannot man be content? And man, this, this part of it just really struck me because, you know, here I live in the United States uh, I was living in Las Vegas at the time and, you know, you know, you could go to the store and find any type of food you could imagine. You could go to all these different markets where you can get food from all over the world. There, there was plentiful food everywhere. There's vitamins and nutrients and supplements and, and fresh in season, uh, plants that you could consume all these different things. But why would you go out and take the life of these, these animals when, when you have all of this abundance, you could eat a full, rich, complete diet. Now, this was not possible in earlier ages of the world. You, you had to go. And, and so Joseph Fielding Smith, let me read you this last little sentence here. He says, naturally in times of famine, the flesh of animals was perhaps a necessity. But in my judgment, when the millennium reaches us, we will live above the need of killing dumb, innocent animals and eating them. If we take this stand in my judgment, we may live longer. So we have this, this kind of conundrum, right? We have all of these blessings, all of this abundance just around us. But why do we feel that we have to have this flesh? Now today it's, it's a little different. You can just go to the store and you can walk down one aisle and you could pick up a plant of some kind. You could walk down another aisle and pick up this styrofoam plate, you know, sealed with saran wrap and there's some meat inside. And you could take those home, 
put them together, make up a meal. You're good to go. You don't have to deal with the blood. You don't have to hunt. You don't have to seek it out. You don't have to look it in the eye when you kill it or, or deal with it struggling. You're removed from the death part of it. And all you have is just the little shape of matter that you grill and put in a salad or on a sandwich or in a burger or whatever, right? We're so far removed from the death. And back during the the days of the law, Moses, they would offer sacrifices on a regular basis. People were very acquainted with the sound of animals suffering and seeing the blood run and the smells and, and just the the very intenseness of the whole thing. But today it's very sanitary. We have these huge factories and this whole industrial complex around uh, raising and then killing efficiently just scores and scores and scores of all different kinds of animals. And many of them, vast majority it seems, are kept in extremely inhumane conditions. And there's a lot of videos online. There's, there's a lot of documentaries that have made where there are, you could see how these animals are raised, what they go through. And it's very hard for me to accept that God is pleased with that. Now you'll see a lot of cows running in these open pastures and on ranches. And many people are very kind to their animals. And there are also many people that, that, raise them humanely and they're very passionate about that. We still eat them for food, but they live good lives. They live nice long lives. And and then you have this whole factory process where you've got genetic engineering, antibiotics, um all just putting them in these small cages where they become diseased and uh and need to have these, these antibiotics to kind of rid them from these infections. It's disgusting. You end up having people consuming these sick and psychologically damaged animals that are, that are raised in these hells and we're taking that into our bodies. And so thinking about that, I'm like, is this part of what the Lord saw as the, the evils and con, evil and conspiring men? Because we didn't have these these factory type things back in the past. You know, cattle would graze in fields and they'd, they'd move them to other fields. And yeah, they were slaughtered and there were great slaughters of animals to provide for people back then. It was shipped out into the cities and stuff. But man, today it's a whole other level. If you've never seen any of this, I mean, look into it. I didn't want to look at it. I didn't, I did not want to see any of these documentaries and watch any of these videos. I, I didn't want to see what went on behind my back, but I needed to. Because if I wasn't going to go out there and kill an animal with my own hands because I needed it to survive, then I was at least going to watch what my money was funding. What am I paying for? What am I supporting with the vote of my dollar? And to peel back that curtain and see what it was that I was outsourcing to other people was horrifying to me, to say the least. So we go on and on. 
um, Theodore M. Burton, Bruce R. McConkie, Spencer W. Kimball, Ezra Taft Benson, Boyd K. Packer, L. Tom Perry, Hugh Nibley, uh, some other quotes. You've got a very consistent message coming from all these leaders, and it meshes with the scriptures that this idea of need, and that's that's what I focused on, is do I need this? So anyway, I know I read a lot of different things, and and I, I tried to include in my list every comment, even if it seemed to contradict some of the conclusions I've come to, it's still in there because I wanted people to have access to everything. I'm, I'm not really trying to cherry pick or pursue an agenda, but those are the quotes. I mean, if you look them up yourself, the vast majority of them have this, this same message. Now, in mo- the modern world, we don't get a lot of that. You'll have like, here we go, L. Tom Perry. This is from 1996. The word of wisdom contains some very positive aspects. It encourages us to use grains, particularly wheat, and to use fruits and vegetables and the sparing use of meat. And that's about all they say in our day. 2001, Harold G. Hillam. He says, the scriptures tell us all grains are good and that meat is ordained for the use of man, but should be used sparingly. You know, Boyd K. Packer, um, this is 1996, so still around that era. When the word of wisdom counsels us to eat meat sparingly, uh, or it counsels us to eat meat sparingly, lest someone become extreme, we're told in another revelation that whoso forbiddeth to eat meat is not ordained of God. So so there is that dichotomy. I, I, I came to the conclusion after looking at a lot of different things that I, I do not call myself a vegetarian or a vegan. Um, especially not a vegan. Vegans avoid the use of animal products of all kinds, period. End of sentence. It's, it's a moral thing. And, and I have a lot of respect for their desire to not cause harm and to be humane and to, you know, maybe find a way to end some of these, these kind of industrial farms where a lot of this, a lot of these horrors take place. Cause I, I, I cannot see how God would be pleased with our treatment of his creation that way. There, something does need to change there. If I would not treat an animal in a particular manner with my own hands or to allow an animal to be treated that way on my own land, then I'm sure as heck not going to pay somebody else to do it for me. That's just, that's not something... I feel like I can support that's, but that's just me. Um, and you may have a different take on that. Hey, that's cool. This is just, this is my story my take. And, um, you know, I just encourage anyone to, to look at all the evidence and, and see what it says to them. You know, maybe you have, and maybe you've come to some different conclusions and I think, Hey, that's perfectly fine. If your conscience is clear, if you feel good about the choices you've made, and the way that you're living the principle. Now, you know, you take some other countries, let's, let's go maybe to some underdeveloped countries where they don't have access to an HEB, a Smith's, an Albertson's, a Walmart. They can't just walk in and, and buy whatever food they want to. They're raising their own food. They only have what's around them. And so they may need to raise rabbits and chickens and and other animals to supplement and sustain their life. I mean, even Jesus in, in uh, his lifetime, uh, his apostles were fishermen. He ate fish. Uh, they didn't have grocery stores like we do today. And, 
is it possible that the Lord envisioned a day where we'd have this great prosperity? I mean, America was a an amazing nation when it was founded and when this revelation was received. But man, it sure seems like today, at least in in some of these first world countries, we have the ability to live in an almost millennial state where we're finally able to um, partake of the things that God has ordained for our constitution, nature, and use and show mercy upon the animal creation and still live happy and healthy lives. So I'm wrestling with all these things and I determine, all right, here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to try and experiment now that we've gone through all of these, these kind of quotes and, and hopefully you at least have a better understanding of what, what kind of information I was coming across and comparing that with the things that I had experienced. I see this consistent message and I say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do the same thing. Alma, um, challenged the people to do. And he said to experiment upon the word, here's the word. Now plant this seed in your heart and see what happens. And so I decided to do that and it was not an easy decision. And, but it's not something I, I took lightly either. I was, I was very serious about it. And so I talked to my wife about it and I said, Hey, here's the thing I've, as I've gone through and I've learned, and I was sharing things with her bit by bit and she was kind of interested in it, but you know, probably had a lot of the same concerns I had, but I said, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to remove animal flesh from my diet and I'm only going to eat it if I think there's a need to do so. And she was very supportive of me. And, and, you know, she's actually very supportive of me to this day, um, with all of this. And, and I know it doesn't make planning meals easy and, and, um, it can kind of be awkward in, in some settings and whatnot, but, you know, it was a little awkward talking about this with my family, but I would say my whole family has been nothing more than supportive and respectful. My, my relatives, my close relatives, all, all of them hunt still and they still eat meat barbecue and, and do all these things. And, um, you know, I respect where they're at and they're very respectful of me. And so there's, I think a piece between us to me, at least it's, it's not really a big deal. I'll talk a little bit about more of that later, but there's, there's another aspect of it that I've discovered along the way, but, uh, I'll mention that here in a bit, but basically I started off on this path and I, I, I tried eliminating all animal products from my diet, even uh, cheese and dairy. And the reason for this was just kind of learning about the animal protein casein and how it's wrapped around this molecule that is chemically identical to morphine. They call it casomorphine. And it, in animal products, it, um, it acts very similar to how actual morphine acts. It's about one-tenth of the strength of just taking pure morphine. But when you compound that on different things, like uh, dairy, for instance, the process of getting to cheese means you're constantly extracting water until you get to this, this cheese state. Well, as you remove the water and you go from milk to yogurt to cheese, you're removing water 
and you're concentrating this casomorphine to where when you get to cheese, you're getting really, really high doses of casomorphine, which is why from my studies, the industries, the, the dairy industry that produces cheese, they know, they know this, they call it the cheese craving. And you look at their presentations and I have some of those on my one essay about uh, the word of wisdom on my blog where they, they know this and they try to put as much cheese as possible on stuff because there's a natural addictive chemical in it that is put on extremely unhealthy foods and uh, it, yeah, it gets people to eat it and people love cheese, but most people don't know that that's why they like cheese. They just think it tastes good when there's actually a chemical messing with your brain and uh, you know, <laughs> kind of altering your mind as to what your opinion of this particular food substance actually is. And so I, I just said, you know, I, I want to eliminate all of these things. I just want to see what happens. And giving up cheese was very difficult, but it wasn't just giving up um, animal products. I wanted to pursue eating wholesome herbs in season. And so that meant I, I had to learn how to cook some new things and I had to prepare some new types of plants. And so it, it wasn't so much leaving things behind. It was pursuing health and wellness, but it wasn't just health and wellness. Back in 2003, I was at a, an institute fireside where uh, uh, Elder Boyd K. Packer was talking and he said something that really blew me away. He said, the word of wisdom is only incidentally about health. And he talked about how it's, it's really about revelation and having that key to revelation as your body deteriorates, the patterns of revelation increase. I'd never thought about it that way, but he said, you know, the, we're promised great treasures of knowledge and hidden treasures. And so I started thinking, you know, God understands these mortal bodies he's created, these tabernacles of the Holy Spirit, these temples, and how they need to be constructed in a way their constitution, their nature, should be made up of XYZ so that God can give you these great treasures of knowledge and these hidden treasures. All of these things weighed on my mind, and I figured the only way I'm really going to know for sure is let's put it to the test and let's let's just see what happens. And I, I discovered some, man, just some really fascinating things with these experiences. It, it felt kind of like fasting continually. I was fasting from certain things that I was very much wanting to eat, but that I desired more something else. I desired more to obtain just the mind and the way of thinking of God and pursue a path that he found pleasing. And I, and I was willing to lay aside anything that stood in between me and that. It became, it became very easy for me to do because I was pursuing something. I wasn't just giving something up. I was moving toward a destination and leaving behind things that I did not need on my destination. And so the principle of some of the principles associated with fasting 
some of the things that result from fasting kind of came into play. This idea of, of giving up one thing in order to obtain something else of value and, and being able to put God's will first in my life over my own appetites. Um, over the years, that, that was a very, a very powerful thing. And, and it's brought to my mind with every meal that I eat, with everything I take into my body, it, it becomes clear that I'm, I'm on this pursuit. And so it brought this, I feel like this connection to God in, into my regular, just daily mundane tasks that, that, that really wasn't there before. And it brought this kind of sacredness and this consecration into my life that, that wasn't there. And, and, you know, I, I dropped about 40 pounds, just not exercising, not doing anything, but 40 pounds basically just dropped off my body over the course of about maybe a year and a half doing nothing else, just changing my diet. It was, it was phenomenal. And I felt so good. I didn't have that bloated feeling anymore. I didn't have a lot of acne on my face. Like I, I once did. Um, I felt good and, and there was definitely just this, this kind of change that occurred inside and outside that I was really enthusiastic about. So I didn't end up eating meat for a long, long time. And people would often ask me, are, are you vegan or vegetarian? I said, no, no, I just, uh, and, and one of the things I came across was this idea uh, this diet called the whole food plant-based diet. And, and so that seemed to be a good explanation of what I was pursuing. I was trying to uh, pursue whole foods that are, that are plant-based because that seemed to mesh pretty much with what was in the word of wisdom. And, and over time I, uh, I began to notice that that some of these changes were having a positive effect upon my back. In fact, even though I had, I had taken dairy completely out of my diet, I would have massive flare-ups in my back. And I even got surgery for it. I don't think it helped. Um, some physical therapy ended up finally helping. But I'd, I'd struggled with this for 15 years, this back injury. And I was in massive pain. And it was, it was very debilitating. And um, I mean horrifying is, is not an extreme word to use when you're talking about the type of back pain I had. I had femoral narrowing, arthritis, degenerative disc, and a bulge disc, all, all those four things at the same time. And when it flared up, I mean, intense, horrifying pain. And so an anti-inflammatories did help. And my diet was a very low inflammatory diet. But then I came across this article one day and it said that even a shot of whipped cream, a single shot of whipped cream can cause a body-wide inflammatory response. And I thought that was pretty extreme. I was like, there's no way. I was like, well, I happen to have just a little shot of whipped cream with my oatmeal and uh, on a waffle or a pancake. And, you know, I would, I would make some of these, these things for breakfast and I would use whole grains and things to make some of them. They're as healthy, about as healthy as you can get with some of those things, fruit bowls and and smoothie bowls and things, just a little shot of whipped cream. I, I, didn't, I, hadn't, I hadn't eliminated all dairy. I started working in little bits of dairy. I'd have a pizza on the weekend, 
Um, I didn't really feel like, like little bits of dairy here and there are, you know, are, are really bad or going to kill you. And, and it's so hard to avoid some of those things. And I didn't really feel like those things specifically were, uh, were displeasing to the Lord, even eggs. I would eat eggs from time to time. Um, so, uh, you know, I, but I avoided, I still avoided eating meat and everything. But after I read about this, um, this whipped cream thing, man, uh, I, I started thinking about it and I was like, you know, there's a little bit of dairy still in some of the things I'm eating and there's definitely whipped cream there. So I cut out whipped cream and I kid you not within four days, four days, all of my pain went away. And, and honestly, I had little shots of whipped cream at, at least every day, every other day for breakfast. But getting rid of that shot of whipped cream caused all of the pain to go away. And I could not believe it. And then about a week later, my wife, she made me some waffles and she was very kind. She brought them to me. I was still in bed snoozing, but she decided to you know, to surprise me with a little breakfast in bed. And there was some whipped cream on there. I said, Oh, but it's got whipped cream. And she goes, Oh, sorry about that. I forgot. And I was like, nah, it's no big deal. It's just a little whipped cream. I ate the, I ate the waffle with the whipped cream. About an hour later, I could feel the inflammation in my back. I could feel it and it freaked me out again. So I cut it out and holy cow, the last couple of years have been absolutely amazing. I have lived mostly pain-free since then. It's been a game changer. Just not eating that little tiny, maybe tablespoon two or whipped cream has changed my life that much because here I am taking anti-inflammatories, but then I'm eating things that cause inflammation. So remove the things that cause inflammation and you don't have to take the anti-inflammatories because you're not inflaming your body. And so I, I did that and wow, what a huge change. And, um, so I've, I've avoided that ever since I've discovered coconut whipped cream, which is amazing. There are a lot of non-dairy whipped creams, non-dairy oat milk and almond milk and cashew milk and walnut milk. And there's all these different things. I, I tend to like oat milk the best, but there's a lot of these non-dairy things that I've found that are very good. So anyway, kind of digressing on that a little bit, but let me, let me take you into one of the next challenges I face. And this is something that's been a challenge forever. I would say it's still a challenge to this day. But I have some more clarity in my mind on this now. One of the big problems is somebody makes a meal and it's got meat in it. So what do you do? Do you eat it? Do you pick it out? I mean, that could be offensive to some people. But if I go to someone's house and they serve whiskey to me, I'm not going to take the whiskey. It, it could be like this finely aged whiskey that's very expensive and they're doing me a, a great honor by giving it to me. I'm not going to take it. I, I don't drink. And uh, I think a lot of people understand that. Oh, you don't drink. Okay. I, I get it. I'm not going to ask you why that's that respect your opinion, but it's not really like that. I don't think when it comes to eating certain things, um, I think people are more opinionated. If, if you don't want to eat a certain type of food, I mean, it's one thing if you're allergic to it or really don't like the taste, but for some reason, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm being offensive when I, when I refuse to eat something, you know, where somebody prepares a great barbecue and they're very excited about it and they want to share it with me and the rest of the family. And, 
and I kind of abstain. I mean, I kind of feel like a jerk. And maybe some of you might be thinking, yeah, you're, that is a jerk thing to do. Well, for the most part, I've, I've made it very subtle. I'll go and eat a bunch of other things. A lot of times there's so many other plant-based foods, they all fit on my plate. There's not room for anything else. And so um, I'm just very quiet about it. I don't make a big deal. I don't make a big stink. I honestly try to be very respectful of other people um, as much as I feel like I can. But if you go in and look at Romans 14, and I'm going to read here a little bit from a translation that's kind of a very basic trans, And I've read many translations of this, so I get the gist of what Romans 14 is saying. But this particular translation, I think, is, is the clearest, and I tend to like this one. And this is from another post here on my blog called Bringing Peace to Dietary and Other Discords. <laughs> and so uh, I kind of saw this as a, as a way of peacemaking among people when they have very different interpretations of things. What Paul says here, this is Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 14. There's a lot of really good stuff in here. But he talks about how some people believe that they could eat all kinds of food, but other people aren't so sure. They only eat vegetables. And people who eat anything must not think that they are better than the people that only eat vegetables. And also the people who eat only vegetables must not judge other people who eat anything. They're not doing anything wrong because God has accepted them. God is the master of all believers and they are his servants. And you do not have the authority to judge someone else's servant. The servant's own master will decide if he has done well or if he has done something wrong. And he continues saying that some people think certain days are special and more important than others. Other people think they're all the same. Each person should decide what seems right to him. A person who makes a certain day special does that in order to respect the Lord. A person who eats all kinds of food does that in order to respect the Lord. He thanks God for the food that he eats. A person who refuses to eat certain foods also does that in order to respect the Lord. And he also thanks God. <laughs> so so as I'm, now if you read the King James version of this, it's at least to me nearly incomprehensible. It's, I mean, I can understand King James English pretty well, but honestly, get another translation when it comes to Romans 14. I'm just saying it, it, it'll be, it'll be helpful to you. But man, um, each person is doing what they think is right to them to respect the Lord. Somebody who's eating a certain thing and doing that to respect the Lord, we should honor that. Now, you know, a critic of that might say, well, are they really respecting the Lord by going out and hunting? Are they really respecting the Lord by making a hamburger? Or are they just satisfying their appetites? Well, as Paul says, it's not for us to judge. The servant's own master will decide if they've done well or not. That's not our place to judge. We can share our beliefs and what we think and why we do what we do. But, you know, we don't need to judge other people. And he goes on, and, and this gets really good. He says, none of us lives only to please ourselves, and we do not die to please ourselves. While we live, we want to please the Lord, right? So he says, if you eat only vegetables, you must not judge under other believers. Also, if you eat anything, you must not think that you are better than other believers, Remember that all of us will have to stand in front of God and he will decide whether we've done right or wrong. And uh, let's see, let's continue down here. We must no longer judge other believers. Instead, you must decide 
to never bring trouble to another believer. Don't cause them to do something wrong. As for me, I'm sure that we may eat any kind of food. God does not think any food is dirty. The Lord Jesus has shown me that this is true, but someone else may believe that it's wrong to eat certain food. For that person, it would be wrong to eat that kind of food, right? So if in your heart you feel like it's not right for you to eat this, you shouldn't. But if you feel it's okay, then then fine, it's okay. The Lord has said that no food is dirty. And he has said that in DNC 89, right? It, the flesh of beasts is ordained for the use of man, for food, for raiment, with clothing and covering, shelter and protection. Uh, he did say, he did put some conditions in there and talked about the importance of need, but ultimately the word of wisdom says it's not sent by commandment or constraint. It's not the will of God to force this on anyone or to say that this person or that person is bad because they're not doing this or that. And I think that goes for if they're smoking or if they're drinking or if they're chewing tobacco or whatever it may be. I know we have, there's prohibitions against, you have to agree to live the word of wisdom, at least one particular interpretation of it in order to be baptized or get a temple recommend. I mean, fine, those recommendations are put there, but that kind of goes against the, the word of wisdom itself, which says it's sent not by commandment or constraint. So if God is not commanding or constraining these things, we should not be commanding or constraining these things. You know, probably not for ordinances and things like that. Definitely not in family situations and our interactions with other people, commanding, constraining people on that. And I know I've, I've spoken and I've shared a lot of quotes and scriptures and, and things. And, and I've, and I've made it clear. I, I think the side I come down on, but it's not that simple. It's not like I just have this one opinion. That's like a vegan that just says, no, you shouldn't use animals at all period. What I'm arguing here using Romans 14 and what Paul himself is arguing is look, you need to do what you feel is right between you and the Lord and not to judge someone else. That's the key part here. This, this part, this understanding is really flushed out and been like the keystone of how I view everything now. And, but it's caused a major challenge. So I'll, I'll get into that, but let's, let's kind of keep going down here. Um, you know, don't cause another believer to be sad of what you eat. If you do make him sad, then you are not really loving him. Remember that Christ died on behalf of that person. So do not let your food make him turn away from God. You may think that something's good, but you should still, but you should not do it. If other people will say that it's bad, we belong to God's people and he is our King. The things we eat and drink are not really important to him. This is important. We should do what's right. We should have peace in our minds. And we should be truly happy. Uh, we should try to live in a way that brings peace. We should try to help each other so that we become stronger as God's people. Do not bring trouble to someone because of the food that you eat. Do not destroy what God has done in the life of another believer. God lets us eat all kinds of food. But do not eat anything that will cause another believer to do something wrong. It is not good to do anything that might cause another believer to do something wrong. That includes if you eat meat or you drink wine. But what you believe about these things should be a secret between yourself and God. This is Paul saying this. These are his words, okay? 
What you believe about these things should be a secret between yourself and God. Here I am making a podcast about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm really uh, contradicting Paul here. And, uh, but I, I feel like I, I have a good reason for doing it, I guess. What I'm trying to do here is to kind of bring all of this out so that maybe other people could benefit by it. Cause I see a lot of contention about these things, a lot of back and forth. And I feel like these things are very healing to me. He continues saying, you should do what you've decided is right for you. Do not feel guilty about what you eat. Then God will bless you. But someone else may not be sure whether it's right to eat certain things, kinds of food. And if that person does eat that kind of food, then he shows that he is guilty. He has not trusted God that it is right for him to do that. Whatever things we do, we must trust God about them. If we do not trust God that something is right, then it is a sin. You know, my takeaway from this is sometimes, especially I see with some people and their dietary choices, they, they virtue signal their dietary choices and it becomes like an, another religion to them where they think they're better than other people because of how they live and some of the choices they make. And well, I do this and I do that and you don't and you're bad and I'm better than you. Now, some people literally say that, but you know, it's, I, I, if I'm being perfectly honest, I, through the years, when I saw myself making these decisions, I felt like I was doing right in the sight of the Lord. And when I see other people making these decisions, I'm thinking to myself, don't you have the scriptures? Don't you have a desire to look at these things and, and maybe make some better choices? And, and it's, it's hard to not think, have this kind of mental superiority. And it's, it's not just with this, it's with anything. You could look at someone who's not of your faith, whether you're Catholic, Baptist, Latter-day Saint, whatever, and you could look at other people and look down on them and say, well, we're the chosen people and they're not the chosen people. Or, and, I, and I don't know that most religious people have that feeling, but you know, there's a little bit of that there. There can be a little bit of that there, of this kind of self-righteousness. And so Romans 14, Paul is trying to, just gut that out of people. He's saying, no, this is not what we do. If the way you're eating is causing somebody that Christ died for to stumble and trip, if they're having a hard time loving you and being charitable because you're making these decisions and making a big deal about things, are you really being Christian? This is really tricky because I don't think we should live our lives in a way where we're constantly worrying about other people and taking responsibility for their thoughts and their actions. But it does seem that we do have a responsibility to not uh, provoke people, which I think is different. There are certainly things we can do to provoke other people. There are choices that we can make that disturb someone's peace. And I think this is what Paul is talking about here. So... You know, is it a big deal if you go to a family dinner and, and you wake up in the morning, you have a plant-based meal, you have your lunches and your, your all this thing, you're, you're living the gospel the way you see fit, but then you go and you have dinner and someone's serving meat and they're very happy about it and, and you know, you're not partaking of it and it's, it's making a big scene, right? It's the worst thing in the world to put a little bit on your plate and to smile and, 
and give thanks and gratitude and congratulate them on, on what they've done and, and have that bond with your family and your friends. Or should you choose say, well, I'm, I'm going to devote myself to God and I'm not going to partake of that. And I'm going to be more loyal to God and, and not really care about what this person's feelings are. I'm doing the right thing. They need to deal with it. You can certainly have that opinion. You may have that opinion uh, with other things though, but let's, let's change the situation. Let's say you're with some people and they offer you some drugs and they're offering you some very expensive drugs. Do you reject it and risk offending them? Because God doesn't care what we eat or drink, right? Are drugs a different thing? You know, where do you draw that line? That's always been a really, really hard line for me to try to find. And I think more than anything, it's, it's not like a fixed line in the sand. It's not a this or that in these, these kind of mutually exclusive options. I think we really got to feel out the situation. Now, there are certain things that I think, I mean, here in the Western world, it's culturally acceptable to say, oh, no, thanks, I don't drink. And I think it's becoming more culturally acceptable to, to say, you know, eating, eating meat's not really what I do. Uh, and I think that's becoming more culturally acceptable. But I think everyone's got to look at their own situations, their own cultures that they're in, how it's affecting the people around them, and, and really explore what the principle behind the word of wisdom is what it means and how we can develop peace with each other. I haven't figured all these things out. Honestly, I still wrestle with these things, but it's a thrilling thing to do because every time I wrestle with these things, I discover new things about myself, about God and the people around me. So it's a very good thing. I feel like to, to wrestle with some of these concepts and ideas. And I still haven't really made a decision of how I'm going to do things with my family. I mean, honestly, I think the one thing that keeps me from eating some of the barbecue, you know, when I'm with my family is, is pride. This is, this is where it kind of comes back. Right. So am I really not partaking of that steak or that brisket because I'm honoring God or because for years and years and years, I've just never done it. And, and family, I think sometimes I, th I feel like there's still is a little pressure to, to eat some of these things, but am I refusing because I'm honoring God because I, I care about them? What, what am I, what's my motivation now? Is it just pride? Do I have this feeling that if I don't partake of it, that I'm, that I'm being better than other people. So I'm wrestling with these things. I'm like, what, what's my motivation here? And, and is this thing kind of come full circle? to where I need to take a more spiritual approach. And I tend to come back to this more and more. Returning back to Romans 14, whenever I'm at a family event or a gathering, do I need to just share with my family? I mean, it would be pretty shocking for me to, to eat some of these things where I haven't eaten them before. And to be honest with you, I have started to introduce these things little by little. Like if uh, I, I've told my family, hey, don't make any exceptions for me. Just make what you're eating and, and I'll figure something out. Like, you know, I really, really appreciate you guys supporting me. But honestly, I'm fine if you don't make any exceptions. Um, it's hard preparing meals and even harder to meet everyone's dietary needs. So, you know, I wouldn't go out of your way 
just know that I'm not going to be offended if there's meat in the spaghetti sauce or anything like that. Just go ahead and, and prepare it. It's fine. And so I, I've started doing some of those things and I've honestly felt good about some of those decisions. And, you know, I have had meat here and there. I, I remember, um, gosh, maybe it was about a year ago. I, I ate a little bit of meat at a family gathering because just the circumstances it was given to me to try and I went ahead and did it, uh, just to be, um, you know, I felt like I was just being nice. I, I wasn't going to try to be a jerk and refuse or, and I ate this little piece of meat and my one daughter who was about 10 years old and I realized she had never really seen me eat meat in her entire life. And she was kind of blown away. She goes, Whoa, dad, did you just eat meat? And you know, I didn't, I didn't really think much of it, but I thought to myself, Oh wow. She's so what's, what's she thinking about what I'm doing and the decisions I'm making? Because honestly, all of my kids, I don't dictate what they eat. If they go to Chick-fil-A and they eat chicken sandwiches, my wife, I mean, I talk to them quite a bit about the word of wisdom and the things and why I do the things I do. And I explain, Hey, you know, it's probably better for you to eat this than that. Cause I'm a parent and I'm responsible teaching things, but there's no commandment and no constraint. I don't have any rules about my kids not eating certain things. So with my wife and kids, they all make their own decisions and I live my life by my example and I let them see my flaws and my weaknesses and, and my growth process. And I think that's good and healthy for them rather than just seeing me come down with these, these commandments and violating the literal spirit of what the word of wisdom was sent to us as, which was this, this invitation showing us the will of God that was not meant to be laden upon people as this, this law. And sometimes people call it the Lord's law of health. And I don't know where they get that phrase from. Maybe somebody said it at one point in time. I'll probably need to look that up. But never anywhere does the word of wisdom claim to be a law of health. So I never call it that. And to me, that phraseology is, is ridiculous, incorrect, and it conveys meanings that you can't attribute to it. Yeah, I'm still wrestling with these things. I'm still trying to figure these things out, how I'm going to interact with different people. But the more and more... I, I learn about the gospel, the more and more I realize how applicable it can be to the individual situations we're in. And I do think that rigidity in some cases can, can do the opposite of what we think we're doing. And we start to step into pharisaical um, areas where we think that the deeds themselves and the loyalty to the deed and the act is what pleases God. And we forget the people that we're around and how the things that we do impact the people around us. And so that's been kind of the, the next evolution in, in my experience and what I'll maybe learn here in the next decade as I, as I continue searching. I'm still growing. I'm still learning. Maybe the next 10, 20, 30 years, I'll have a completely different opinion. Maybe some other people who I thought were way behind on this issue were actually further ahead than me. And that, that I was the one who didn't have the right take. And it just took me a longer way to get there. I don't know. I think there's a ton of stuff still to learn on this issue. And, and I feel like little by little, more and more comes here and there. 
And, you know, I don't, I don't have any regrets about starting this journey and what I've experienced along the way. It's given me some great closure to some things I dealt with before, but it's also opened up some new understanding to some things that I don't think I would have ever considered had I not gone on this journey. Just some things about sacrifice, um, understanding in other people and, and the choices they make in life and respecting their choices and giving them room to grow and, you know, feeling ridiculous sometimes, feeling like the only guy on a hunt, not hunting, not eating meat in Texas. You know, you could, you could eat this right here. It's not even, there's no commandment. There's nothing bad that's going to happen to you. What, you know, people tend to look at me questioning my actions and, and there I sit probably looking like some kind of weirdo, but I feel like it's good for me to experience that because it does humble me and I, and I need as much of that as I can. I mean, we all do, right? It's good to feel isolated, humiliated at times, different, but, but I think it should happen for the right reasons. And I don't entirely know if everything I'm doing is for the right reasons. Some things maybe yes, but like I've said before, I, I don't have this all figured out and I wanted to record this podcast just to talk about some of these things, this 10 year journey, man, I'm really glad I had a chance to record this and, and talk about some of these things and, and work through it. And hopefully uh, you've enjoyed this stroll through my brain and hopefully there's something here that is useful to you. Ultimately at the end of the day, that's all I care about is anything I put out there. Is there anything useful to someone? Even if you think I'm completely off base and you don't want to be anything like what I'm doing on my journey, hey, you got something from it, right? Thanks for listening. We haven't begun to scratch the surface of all the subjects I hope to cover here on the One Climbs podcast, so stay tuned. We got a lot more climbing to do.